0: A very warm welcome everybody. You're watching Squawk Box this Tuesday morning. Let's get into your headlines. The World Bank has cut its global growth forecast, citing intensifying price pressures, the war in Ukraine and China's zero COVID stance. World Bank President David Malpass tells CNBC developed countries must do more to aid the recovery. One of the biggest things that advanced economies could do is have uh, uh pro-supply policies in their own policies to, uh, uh, to begin to grapple with inflation. The 10-year Treasury yield hits its highest level since December 2018, while Fed hawk James Bullard tells CNBC he's not ruling out a bumper 75 basis point hike at a single meeting.
1: The hawkish shift to the Fed since last November has caused volatility in markets and there has been repricing. And I am very sympathetic to the financial market.
2: Twitter rallies as the social media giant looks to thwart Elon Musk's takeover attempt with a poison pill, with sources telling CNBC private equity giant Apollo is willing to finance a buyout of the firm. Bank of America's bullish revenue outlook gives a boost to its stock as the firm caps off an underwhelming earnings season for the country's largest banks.
0: So the World Bank has slashed its global growth outlook for this year to 3.2%. That's down from 4.1%, mainly due to the effects of the war in Ukraine. One of the main components of the bank's revision is a major contraction expected in Russia Ukraine and their near-neighbours. Lockdowns in China are also expected to take their toll, despite the country topping first-quarter growth expectations and growing nearly 5 percent. Declining economic indicators in March showed potential weakness for the world's second-largest economy later in the year. The World Bank president, David Malpass, said the organization is responding to increasing food and energy security issues, calling on cash rich economies to step up one thing advanced economies could do is open their markets more than they ha- than they have been i saw co- uh corn was above 8 dollars a bushel today yet the us is putting a big chunk of the corn crop into ethanol uh to substitute for for uh for gasoline so it drives you know I, one of the biggest things that advanced economies could do is have uh uh pro supply policies in their own policies to uh, uh, to begin to grapple with inflation. The IMF is also expected to cut its growth outlook later today. Tomorrow, you can catch my interview with Tobias Adrian, director of capital and money markets at the IMF. We'll get into the details of the fund's updated global financial stability report. Juliana.
2: Well, this morning here in the UK, we are just getting started a fresh week here in terms of trade. Yesterday closed for the long weekend, but U.S. markets were open yesterday and it was a marginally weak day in the U.S. We had all three major indices end the day marginally lower. Investors gearing up for one of the busiest weeks in terms of corporate earnings this season. And major indices have been grinding lower as earnings season has got underway so far. In particular, the U.S. financial sector um, seeing some underwhelming results and also uh, prepping investors for a potential increase in credit losses in the months ahead as inflation begins to bite. So here's a look at the three majors. Yesterday, the Dow Jones falling about 40 points, the S&P 500 pulling back about two basis points or so, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq dropping about 14 basis points. We did see some action in Treasury markets yesterday with the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield hitting its highest level since December 2018. Right now, the U.S. 10-year is trading with a yield of about 2.85%. Over toward the front end of the curve, we've got the Two year trading around 2.44%. Commodity markets have also seen some pretty significant moves. We've seen uh, a, a lot of um, focus on potential shortages across commodities. So let me just highlight for you what we're seeing in some of the key ones. This morning, we do have some stabilization in natural gas. Um, stateside, we've got it trading around $7.80. Uh, 80- Three uh, cents In terms of oil markets, this is the picture for Brent and WTI this morning. We are seeing a little bit of a bounce back in Brent up about 32 basis points to 113.52. WTI trading around $108 a barrel. Gold, meanwhile, the safe haven is trading on the back foot this morning, but just about 0.22% lower. Um, in terms of corn and wheat, we've seen corn hit its highest level since 2012. Wheat also hitting its highest level since late March. Right now, we've got the uh, the uh, corn contracts uh, trading around 812.75. Soybeans trading about 0.6% higher, and wheat trading about 0.8% higher. So just a little bit of a march higher this morning, but we are looking at um, some recent highs for these key commodities. Um, turning to Asian markets, the overnight session, how the trade is shaping up. We've got the Hang Seng trading on the back foot down about 1.8%. We've got regulation coming back to the fore. Chinese tech stocks taking a hit overnight as Beijing tightened regulation around live streaming. Um, the nikkei 225, in contrast, is trading firmer, about 0.6%, and the Shanghai Composite, interestingly, also holding firm this morning despite increased concern around the COVID situation on the mainland. Jeff.
0: Terrific, Juliana, thank you. The Feds James Bullard has said he wouldn't rule out a 75 basis point interest rate hike this year. However, Bullard, who is a voting member of the FOMC, said this is not his base case, and he's maintaining his outlook for consecutive 50 basis point rises. Speaking to Steve Leisman, the St. Louis Fed president, said markets are already planning for tighter monetary policy.
1: The hawkish shift of the Fed since last November has caused volatility in markets and there has been repricing and I am very sympathetic to uh, financial markets. At this point, quite a bit has been priced in. Um, We'd be following through and uh, there, there may be corners of the market that haven't adjusted yet and they would still have to adjust.
0: Well, our U.S. colleagues will speak with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic. That's uh, on closing bell at 2100 Central European time. Andrew Lake is head of fixed income at Mirabau Asset Management and joins us this morning. Andrew, we've got this remarkable bidding war now on what the next interest rate hike could be. Uh, Jim Bullard saying we may go as much as 75 basis points. What is he trying to do to the curve?
3: good morning yes I mean it's it seems like we're doubling down every week um, uh, the the interesting thing I think has been that um, we've had that big shift in the last Three to four months from the Fed, from basically saying we've been in a situation of transitory inflation, to really having to move very quickly to uh, to kind of alleviate the the concern that they are really far behind the curve. And I think we all know that that they are. So really, what they're, what they're trying to do is um, is to really show that they are uh, they are aware of the situation with regard to to inflation. And so this is why I think they are now trying to move as quickly as they can, um, as fast as they can, um, to really to, to to try and really get that. Um, that message across to markets, and they've been very good at, at, at messaging with, with regard to the financial markets over the last several years. So, I think that's really what we're doing here. We're looking at a situation where the Fed is, is showing that it's prepared to move very quickly to combat inflation in the very short term, hence, you know, 50 for the 50 or 75 minutes. You know, it's, it's immaterial which one is, but, but a large move in May and in subsequent meetings as we go forward.
0: How comfortable do you feel? Uh, In opening new positions in fixed income at the the moment, Andrew, it just seems to me there's a lot of opacity about um, earnings, about the war, about the virus. Um, Who knows whether the 10 year ultimately is going to end at 3 percent or 4 percent this year. Um, A lot of a lot of um, difficulty, it seems to me, in trying to ascertain how this interest rate story is going to play through what does that mean then for the way that you think about opening new positions in the market
3: it's a very good question I think the the, the problem we have at the moment is we have as you as you quite rightly point out we have a lot of uh, confusion we have a lot of volatility as a result of, of this this step change in investor mentality from going going from basically a situation where uh, we were having no rates at, at the beginning of the year to one where we're now pricing in 10 um, by the first quarter of next year. And, and that number keeps increasing. So I think at the moment, it's very difficult to – one has to take a step back and rethink about where we're going. Now, there's a lot of news, bad news already in the market, as you've quite rightly pointed out. And a lot of that's already been priced in. We're pricing in a lot of interest rate rises. We're pricing in um, you know very high inflation going forward. Um, you know, we're talking about recession. Goldman Sachs came out yesterday, saying you know 35% chance of uh, recession uh, in 2023. So all of these things are beginning to to, to percolate in uh, in investors' psyches, and I think that the passive release resistance is is for things to go wider and lower. Um, I think from where I sit as a fixed income investor, one can be. Marginally constructive in terms of where we're going. Um, you know, I think this is a new business, a new a new uh, fixed income cycle. We were talking about zero rates and negative yields forever two years ago. We now have you know, large parts of fixed income that, that have moved back into positive territory, albeit um, in in a, in a very short space of time. But but all of these things are, I think, you know, constructive. I think where where we where I sit in terms of what what I'm doing today is um, I'm certainly looking at um, better quality fixed income. Um, we've had a huge move in investment grade over the last three or four months you know, not seen since the great financial crisis and other very large, um, shock shocks to the market. So I think that we're beginning to see, um, uh, value coming into the market. I don't think there's any real margin in taking a lot of risk in terms of you know, weaker credit risk. I think good quality, high yield investment grade is beginning to look interesting. Um, but one has to be careful. I think, you know, when we look at, um, where this is all going, we just don't know right now. Um. You know, you're, and, and you're quite right. We could see the 10-year rate uh, at over 3%. We could see it staying where it is. We, we just don't know. I think one positive I'm looking at at the moment is that we are seeing still a very, uh, you know, re- very robust consumer in the US. We're beginning to see freight rates coming down. We're beginning to see a switch from durable goods to services. Um, services are very strong. Um, so we may indeed see that inflation begins to peak as we saw in the cpi albeit you know from from one number but we begin to see cpi peak we begin to see consumer expenditure change to services from durable goods we begin to see some reopening of supply chain um, blockages and that natural slowdown that you talked about from china and some of the inflationary prices seen from food will naturally begin to slow um, the economic environment anyway and really what we're talking about here is are we talking about a hard landing recession in 2023 or are we talking about a gradual slowdown? At the moment, I'm more in the camp that we're looking, looking at, a, at, a, at a gradual slowdown. As consumer behavior changes, the economy begins to, to take some heat out of it as a result of the, the interest rate rises that we're going to see out of the US and so forth. So, so I think that that's really where I'm looking at. And in that environment, you can still begin to think about some of the uh, the better quality investment grade, certainly some of the better quality high yield, um, albeit those areas that aren't exposed to um, frontline consumer spending, discretionary spending. So retail, for example, I think is, is one area that I that I would be very cautious on right
2: now. Andrew, really interesting to hear your thoughts, especially on the, the consumer, because clearly that is a, a key part of the um, outlook moving forward, the strength of the consumer, particularly in the U.S. I'm curious how you're thinking about Europe versus the U.S. right now from a fixed income perspective.
3: Yeah, so I, I think from, from a European perspective, it's difficult. I think the ECB has uh has quite quite uh quite a lot in terms of where it 's going and so i think that the Europe is further behind the u you s know, as it always seems to be the economic environment is is a is a little less robust the consumer is far more exposed to uh to higher energy costs and obviously the threat of of those costs going higher with regard to the situation uh, with russia um, so I, I do think, actually, that it's certainly in Europe that we could have a situation where where you see that the the, the economic environment actually decline more quickly than than we're expecting in the US. I think balance sheets in Europe are not as robust as they are in the US for the US consumer. So so I would I would I would actually say that we may not see interest rates go up as much as we're as we're expecting in Europe, just because the economic environment is going to decline that much faster. Um, so I think in Europe one has to be a little bit more careful with regard to it, positioning in fixed income. Um, we're pricing in some interest rate rights, but at some point this year, I think going back into very high quality um, you know, government bonds would, would probably make sense in Europe and really be looking at uh, avoiding those, uh, those kind of riskier end of the markets, but for example, high yield credit, European uh, fixed income.
2: Andrew, on Europe, we are all waiting to see what how European leaders end up approaching Russian energy more broadly. If we end up seeing a blanket ban on Russian energy, Um, how much of a risk is that? And what do you think is priced in at this stage when it comes to um, the sanctions situation? Do you think that that is priced in right now that we could see Europe move to a more draconian banning of all Russian energy?
3: I think it was we've seen already there. There has to be a balance. Certainly, from the European governments' perspective, in terms of how how hard it hits them and how hard it hits Russia, obviously the the right thing to do would be to 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 increase the sanctions, albeit they haven't worked. Um, so far, and one can keep doubling down on this, um, but I would I would expect that we will move to a situation a, a situation of increasing that um, that ban on energy, but it will be a very gradual process. I think a lot of that's already priced in. I think if we look at the markets generally, there's an awful lot of bad news that's that's been priced into the markets. I mean, I, I'm not thinking that we're going to have another um, Q1 2022 in Q2, for example. So I I, I do think that um, that there are we are beginning to see opportunities. I think in Europe, we, we still haven't got as far as the US in terms of um, in terms of the risks that we are looking at, as you, as you quite rightly point out, with regard to energy sanctions and so forth and, and where the economic environment uh, turns for, for European fixed income and other risk assets. But, but I think, you know, certainly at the moment, we're pricing in a lot of, of, of bad news with regard to that.
2: And Andrew just lastly I want to circle back to um, your conversation with Jeff at the start of, uh, of this interview and the Federal Reserve you made the point that they've been really good at communicating their strategy and that's made investors comfortable with being able to predict the Fed's path but there's communication and then there's the policy itself. Um, what would a, a policy mistake look like at this stage from the Fed in your view.
3: So this is well this is the this is the uh the million dollar question. Um you know what the market is now beginning to sense that um you, you know there's a lot of rate rate rises coming very aggressive conversations coming out of the Federal Reserve and that obviously you know, every cycle ends every cycle ends in a recession. It just it just depends on what that recession looks like. Um and I think that you know, it's very important with well, the Fed seems to be very very consistent in in making sure that that's that messages that they're going to front end load this. Um, my personal view is that that's exactly what's going to happen, and then we probably begin to see a pause at some point um, in the second half, maybe around. Sorry, in third half, maybe third quarter, maybe around the election, uh, the, this, the midterm elections. Um, I think that uh, you know, in terms of going too far and too fast, you it would basically be taking um, interest rates beyond the ten that we're seeing to, to next year, and in the face of What looks like a consumer that is pulling back um, that that demand destruction from from the consumer as costs uh, as as inflation continues to be high, but also interest rates continue uh, are going up, and therefore your cost of living goes up. Um, You know, we're already seeing mortgage rates going up in the US thirty year mortgage rates. So I think you're already beginning to see some tightening, Um, and I think the Fed would like to see that tightening to continue um, as in line with what it's going to be doing on interest rates. Um, So I think that. it just doesn't seem to me that the Federal Reserve, after all it's done, is going to blindly increase rates into um, into a slow into a you know what, it, what becomes a very dramatic slowdown. So I, I do think that they are going to tweak this. Um, the market's anticipating a lot more than the Feds actually said. All the Federal Reserve has said is they're going to be very aggressive um, in the next few meetings. So so I really think that um, we we'll probably see a situation in the next two to three meetings where we see some very aggressive action, and then. We'll probably have a period of time when we wait to see how that uh, impacts, uh, how the general general, um, economic environment has changed with regard to both inflation and consumer demand.
0: Andrew, good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Andrew Lake, Head of Fixed Income Thank you very much. at Mirabeau Asset Management. Uh, let's tease something that's coming up a, a little bit later on in the week. Fed Chair Jerome Powell and ECB President Christine Lagarde headline a CNBC IMF panel moderated by Sarah Eisen. That's Thursday at 1900 Central European Time. China's central bank has announced a new set of measures to support covid hit industries, including boosting credit as the PBOC looks to soften the economic fallout from the government's zero covid strategy. The measures come after China reported its biggest decline in consumer spending and worst unemployment rate since the early months of the pandemic.
2: Coming up on the show, Twitter adopts a poison pill in a bid to fend off Elon Musk's takeover attempt, while the Tesla CEO hits back at the social media giant's board. And for more on the global economic outlook as both the World Bank and the IMF reassess their forecasts, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
0: Shares in Didi are sinking on reports the Chinese ride hailing giant plans to delist in the United States. The group says it will hold an extraordinary general meeting later in May to decide whether to halt trading on the New York Stock Exchange, despite going public in the US just last year. The company is subject to an ongoing cybersecurity investigation by Chinese regulators. Shanghai's market regulator has summoned 12 e-commerce platforms, including Meituan, over alleged price gouging. During the pandemic, the tech giants were told to improve their management of delivery drivers and stop improper price increases. This as the Chinese financial hub remains under strict lockdown due to a recent rise in coronavirus cases. The wider Hang Seng tech index is also trading lower today following those reports.
2: Let's get the latest on the Twitter story. Private equity firm Apollo Global Management is reportedly willing to finance a potential takeover of Twitter. According to CNBC sources, the New York-based buyout firm has held talks about backing the possible deal. Now, this move comes after Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, made a $43 billion offer to buy the social media giant. Apollo could provide Musk or other bidders with equity or debt to support an offer, but says it would not be interested in being part of a private equity consortium. Elon Musk has taken a swipe at Twitter's board after the company adopted a poison pill to protect itself from his buyout offer. Musk tweeted that the social media giant could save $3 million if it accepted his deal because the board's salaries would be reduced to zero. The tech giant rejected Musk's $43 billion offer, saying it would flood the market with shares if any acquisition without the board's approval went ahead. Julia Borstein filed this report. After Elon Musk made an unsolicited bid to buy
1: Twitter. And on Friday, Twitter's board adopted a poison pill or shareholder rights plan to fend off that purchase. There's been more speculation about what's going to happen next. On Saturday, Elon Musk tweeting out Love Me Tender with some musical notes, hinting that he could do a tender offer, appeal directly to shareholders to buy out the company from them. He also tweeted, quote, with wow, wow, with Jack departing, the Twitter board collectively owns almost no shareholders. Objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with shareholders. And on Monday, Musk tweeted out, board salary will be zero dollars if my bid succeeds. So that's $3 million a year saved right there. He's referring to the salaries paid to the board members. So what happens now? Well, the poison pill does give the board time to find another buyer at a higher price than what Musk offered. And we don't know what the plan B is that Musk mentioned he had in the TED interview he did last week. But Musk does have a couple of options. He could line up a financing partner and increase his bid above $54 a share, Wedbush analyst Dan Ives says roughly $60 a share would seem more appropriate for the company, Ives saying, quote, getting a deep-pocketed private equity partner would lighten the load for Musk and overall increase the attractiveness and viability of the bid in the eyes of shareholders. Musk could also lay out his strategic plan for collateralizing Tesla or SpaceX stock to the board and shareholders, and he could challenge the poison pill in court. Of course, Musk could decide to sell his shares and walk away if he thinks the poison pill makes buying the company too much of a hassle, though based on his recent tweets, that move seems unlikely. Julie Borstin, CNBC Business News, Los Angeles.
2: Well, so in terms of this story, it is um, expected by by many that Twitter will reject this offer from Elon Musk. Clearly, they have uh, already taken measures to try to fend off the offer. But I I think it it clearly raises the question, um, one of many questions, what would happen if Twitter did fall under the control of Elon Musk? And I think one of the most interesting debates that I'm hearing right now is around the potential political implications of Elon Musk taking over Twitter, given how he has said he wants to make it a free speech platform, which obviously paves the way for the spread of all kinds of information. And in terms of political consequences, there is the question of whether this would um, lend support to certain right wing groups out there and what this could mean down the line for U.S. elections. Um, Obviously, that's a a, a longer term question, but I think it's one that's uh, really important and and something that could come uh, if Twitter ends up going down this path.
0: Uh, so many interesting questions here. I mean, is is this for real? It, th- so much of this feels like a circus show at the moment, right? And now we've got Apollo apparently being drawn in, and Silver Lake maybe talking to Elon Musk about how to raise the firepower to increase the bid here. And and you still look at Twitter and you say, well, what is the underlying business model for this? Uh, site to be successful over the long term. And that, to me, has always seemed to be the the challenge when you think about the business model for Twitter, what over 90% of um, the revenue stream is basically advertising, Mm. right? So you've got an ad-based model, and advertisers are incredibly sensitive to bad news. So to your point about does this change the nature and the tone of what's permissible on the site? If it does, Mm. ultimately, a business that has struggled anyway for a long time to prove its reason for existing in financial terms could be faced with another Mm. challenge here. Will advertisers walk away if Elon Musk ultimately has a controlling stake in this business? So there are so many imponderables, I think, floating around. It's pretty hard to get a good grasp of whether this deal is going to take place. Is it going to take place in conjunction or in opposition with private equity companies mm-hmm. who may team up with other interested parties? And ultimately, if Elon Musk then does the deal and is a controlling shareholder, do the advertisers stay on board at this point or do they walk away? We, we, we all understand Elon Musk's ability to court controversy mm-hmm. and end up in a courtroom uh, because of something he said, um, and then has to hold up with the lawyers. Um, so at this stage, I think for me, the jury's still out mm-hmm. as to whether this actually goes anywhere at all. And then obviously, we can have those conversations mm-hmm. if it does go somewhere about is this a desirable outcome for Twitter? Or for social media more broadly, given Elon Musk's controversial nature.
2: Well, I think that your, your point about Twitter's business model being in question here it raises the question of what is the fair value of Twitter? And if you are an investor deciding whether or not to get involved here before we know the outcome of this situation, um, what what is it worth? And there, there was an interesting note out from Dan Ives, a, a, a regular guest on this program, um, saying that his views based on conversations with investors is that um, a bit of around the six threshold would become more attractive to shareholders. Um, And then lastly, I would just add, Jeff, that in terms of what advertisers may think of a Twitter that's led by Elon Musk is an important question. And also, what would Twitter employees think of that? Because Twitter employees, we know, have been um, very involved in the conversation around how much should be regulated and controlled in terms of content. And talent is hugely important to these tech giants. So what would um, Twitter's employee base think of of Twitter in the hands of Elon Musk? Elon Musk. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. And there are all sorts of other stakeholders out there who've already expressed an interest in stopping Elon Musk. Uh, Prince Al-Walid has a significant mm-hmm. chunk in Twitter, and he's already suggested that he would be willing to vote against an Elon Musk takeover. So it's quite um, interesting how this story, yet again, an <laughs> Elon Musk driven circus dog and pony show, uh, seems to be smoking out very, very solid um, uh, positions in opposition to Elon Musk at this stage. But, I mean, a great story for us to focus <laughs> on here. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.